0: Hey guys, welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Now, I love a guest with a mission. And for my guest, Jessica Yellen, former CNN chief White House correspondent, changing how we receive and process the news is her goal. As she says, separating the news from the noise and offering people news without having a panic attack. That's what she would like. Now she's bringing her vast reporting experience in journalism to a new project via social media, namely Instagram. And as well through her new novel, she is showing us new ways of processing and thinking about how our news is reported. LA native and Harvard graduate Jessica Yellen's award-winning career includes reporting for CNN, ABC, MSNBC, and as CNN's White House chief correspondent. She's reported in depth from the last three campaign cycles, interviewed presidents, officials, and candidates. In 2010, she won a Gracie Award for her reporting on the intersection of women and politics. And just a few weeks ago, she released her first novel. It's called Savage News, and it's the story of an ambitious journalism navigating the often crazy landscape of cable news in the White House. Obviously, it's built on many of her own experiences. Write what you know, she says. And just wait till you hear some of her stories and some of the notes that female reporters get from male bosses. Apparently, your hair is very important when reporting on policy issues. Jessica Yellen's interest in politics came early. After graduating, she was an intern at the Clinton White House. I started by asking her what she learned from this job experience and how it led her on the path to journalism.
1: I grew up in a family that talked about politics at the dinner table. So I always thought I would be in politics. And you're right, right out of college, I worked in the Clinton White House, and I would always observe that. There were two things that could stop a room cold. One was the president walking in, and the other was that one TV that was in the corner of every room. And back in those days, there was only one 24-hour cable news channel. It was CNN. So it was that one TV with CNN, and whenever they were reporting on the White House, that would also stop the room cold. And I realized how much influence the people on that TV had um, inside the White House. And that's when I got my first sort of inkling and taste to be a White House correspondent.
0: That's what you wanted to do. And that's so interesting to read about your early journalism career, because you were one of those young women that really took um, drive, ambition. You worked from the ground up. You were a new um, reporter in Florida and and covering just about everything. Tell me a little bit about that early time and what that taught you.
1: Yes. Well, my first job, I'm from Los Angeles, California, and my first job was across the country um, in Orlando, Florida. I should say my first job in TV news. And in Orlando, Florida, I was what they call a one-man band reporter, which means I carried my own camera. I shot my own interviews. I also um, wrote, produced, edited, and voiced them as well. It was a lot.
0: And what a great way to learn. I mean, that's why you went, you became what
1: you became. That's sweet of you. I do think it helped me, it helped me so much because A, you just internalize that you can get any story done. When it's up to you to get something from nothing to on air in seven hours no matter what, you learn how to do that. It also helped me really appreciate the job of the camera person. And so I always thought in terms of visual images because I had been on the other side of making TV news from a camera, like I always thought what image matches these words. So that was great training. And it made me so grateful to have a camera person when I finally got one.
0: One of the things you write about in Savage News that I found really interesting were sort of the gendered aspects of TV news. You got a lot of really odd notes from your uh, bosses about appearance and stuff. How, How did that make you feel?
1: I mean, it was, you know, when it was happening, it felt awful. It just feels like criticism and an undertow. You just feel like you're working so hard and somehow it's too hard to make progress. Why is it so hard for me to make progress? And now in retrospect, yes, I see it as in part sexism. You're on the White House lawn reporting and worried about, you know, being substantive uh, and doing the reporting right and, you know, advancing the story. And the note you get is um, your hair appears to be an eighth of an inch longer on one side than on the other. Are we tilting Is our haircut on? Or um, I I was told I have a building problem, and
0: excuse me, a building problem, as in
1: house, White House, Justice Department, Supreme Court, and what that meant is I don't look authoritative in front of a building. Oh my god! And I was told I'm not the only one with a building problem, so I shouldn't feel uniquely bad.
0: But what were you supposed to do about
1: the building problem? grow a penis or <laughs> I mean it's really not about and I mean that is the whole point is that your power to change it yeah um and I'll tell you I'm not I'm, I'm quite short petite and so my assumption is in the mind's eye of the producers they think of me that way and imagine it on tv looking that way but it, of course to viewers they can't tell no of course not
0: um,
1: and it's just a way of saying you you don't have the gravitas we want even though I'd be older than other, you know, guys were doing, whatever. You get the point. I'm the one who's talking about it. But behind the scenes, a lot of women lived it. Have they, I mean, it's interesting because
0: I, I come to think of sort of the Fox News women. And there is a certain kind of look of, of women in, in, in that kind of, um, you know, they're all blonde and they all sort of look the same not to be that way. But is, is there something that they have to do or,
1: or what's going on there? There's a look. And, um, the look is, you know, straight hair and, you know, fake eyelashes and a certain amount of makeup. And one of the things I've been telling people is if you watch some, a woman who starts on the news and maybe she'll have curly hair, maybe she's an analyst or an expert who appears every so often, watch her progress over time. And, you know, within a few months, her hair will go from curly to wavy within a few more months. It'll just have a curl at the bottom and then eventually it sticks straight and probably a little lighter and lots of like, there's just a transformation that takes place. Some of that is, um, you're told to do it and some of it by management. And then some of it is you kind of look around and see who is getting the promotions and opportunities and how they appear and you realize that's what you need to do. And the irony is, you know, guys have expectations too, but nothing like that.
0: Has anything changed over the decades that you've been you know, a reporter in the most important rooms?
1: There are women who run network news organizations now, and that didn't exist before. But I will also say that about nine years ago, there were two women in the anchor chairs of the evening news, and today there are none. So do I hope things change? Yes. Are they changing? Let's wait and see.
0: So going back to your story, um, you became a White House correspondent. Um, How did this
1: happen? I like I said, when I was at the White House, I always wanted to become a White House correspondent because I thought that they had so much influence and they were so um, they could shine a spotlight. Right. And they could show you what really mattered. And when they did, people in the White House paid attention. So I always thought in the Clinton White House that, um, oh, the media is focusing on scandal and I wish they'd look at this policy and that would make a difference. If I were there, I'd do it differently. So I decided to set out to be a White House correspondent so that I could focus on the right things, sort of, if you will. And that was always my goal. So I set out to become a White House correspondent. And it turned, you know, I I went through local news and I went to um, overnights at MSNBC and I did all sorts of things. And at every stage I said, I'd like to be White House correspondent, even Good Morning America, all the places. And along the way, they'd say to me, um, "Oh, that's nice, but go cover this sinkhole, a wildfire, uh, Martha Stewart going to jail." And every time I'd come back and I'd do the work, and then I'd come back and say, "I want to be White House correspondent." And then eventually, there was an opening at the White House because somebody who was there got a promotion, and they suddenly had a need. And they—I'm sure—they were like, "Yellen's always saying she wants to be at the White House. Let's just stick her there." And they told me, they said, don't get excited. We want to do something, but don't get excited. This isn't your job. We just want you to do this temporarily. Go to the White House. And then, you know, two weeks became a month. A month becomes five months. And then. Which administration was this when you started? My first White House beat was um, I did the Bush, W. Bush administration, George W. Bush. And I covered him right in 2004 after his reelection. So I covered Iraq War, um, NSA wiretapping, Katrina, um, his his you know plan for um, to help eradicate AIDS in Africa. Uh, it was a lot going on then.
0: Well, can you talk a little bit about how you feel the sort of Clinton, Bush, Obama administrations, what their different relationship to the press was?
1: Well, one of the it's a great question because one of the things that really changed over time is. Um, the accessibility of information. So when Clinton was president, we were just getting email. And so, and you only had, you know, at the beginning you only had CNN and then more networks came along, but you know, Clinton officials could talk to reporters openly and know that the chance that it would get out was limited because you probably only had the evening news or the morning show and you only had some email. So they could be, more forthcoming and then they could call you back and change us, you know, update you, whatever. It was like a little more comfortable. By the time Bush was president, you had email and you had more cable channels. So they could tell you something and you could send it around and run on TV with it. But then the oh so they were a little less forthcoming. And then the Obama White House, you had Twitter. So the minute they told you something, you could be posting it real time on Twitter. It was Twitter. out. And that I think is part of the reason they were even less forthcoming. Now I will say all of that was a different moment from the moment we're in. Now
0: according to your experience what is President Trump's relationship to the press?
1: I mean the president is choosing to position the press as his opposition. The president succeeds he uh, his you know sort of public posture is that he does best when he's in combat. And he's making the press one of his opponents in a world wrestling type thing. And it's, I think, um, really beneath the office and dangerous because there is a reason the free press is enshrined in our constitution and in democracy. They exist to inform the electorate. Um, and so it's just and, and at any time the press is undermined like this, it's dangerous for a democracy and it's dangerous to them individually. I have friends who are scared to cover the campaign like they're going to do it. But they, there's this fear collectively that something could go wrong at one of these rallies when he really foments upset, if there's a crazy person. Um, and then it also creates like a media question, which is how often should they report his false, misleading and provocative lies about the press? Right. Is it giving is it is amplifying that destructive and pointless, or is it important? My personal view is that a lot of times his tweets and that stuff doesn't need to be reported. We should amplify it less.
0: What would you say is some one of the most egregious cases of misleading the press that this administration has done?
1: I on I feel overwhelmed by that question. Like, <laughs> I mean, the attorney, <laughs> there's the, so many. The attorney general testified yesterday, and he claimed that it. You know, he put out a summary like that. Uh, he mis- He's claimed that the reason Bob Mueller objected to his own summary was because of press reports. And when you look at the letter Mueller wrote, he talked about the public's perception, not press reports. So, um, I mean, this is a something, a, an unfolding crisis that we're having right now in Washington. Um, that has less to do with just misleading the press, more to do with misleading the American public in shadow. Everyone, yeah. Um, so, but that's what the White House, I mean, Sarah Sanders briefings, she goes out there, Kellyanne Conway's comments. I mean, there isn't, I was talking about this the other day. It used to be when McClellan was the press secretary, anybody was the press secretary in prior administrations. When the press felt they were misleading, we'd say, aren't you worried about destroying your credibility that you'll no longer have credibility? We don't talk about that anymore. Like it's as if we don't expect this White House to be truthful at all anyway they don't have credibility. So you can't say you're going to lose your credibility because there's no credibility. So we're in a era where we expect fabrication all the time. And I think it's important to realize there's so much cynicism about Washington right now, but this is a different, this is different. In the past, it wasn't like that.
0: So over many years now, um, the volume of the news has elevated. There's constant breaking news. There's pundits. Your goal has been, as you have said, to give us news without a panic attack, to sort of separate the news from the noise. So you've started your own project reporting um, via social media, via Instagram. Tell me about this.
1: So on Instagram, under my handle, which is at Jessica Yellen, Y-E-L-L-I-N, I report the news in a um, daily fashion as often as I can right now. i book booked it's hard. Um, I do one story in depth and try to cover um, a little bit of the rest. The idea is there's an audience of people who want information told differently. And I can give you succinct, smart, analytical information about a big story during the day. And A lot of what you get from the news can be overwhelming and everything's a mountain, nothing's a molehill. And a lot of these places aren't very attentive to differentiating because they want your eyeballs at all times. So they make everything mega. And what I try to do is say, okay, here are these four things that all the news networks are talking about. These three things are noise. You can pay attention to them if you want, but it's like reading a gossip magazine. This story over here that's news. It matters. Here's what it means. Here's why you should care. Here's what happens next. You're done. And the idea is to make the news accessible and digestible for um, a, lar- a different audience.
0: Now, we're getting coming into a new election cycle. Everything is starting already um, for 2020. How do you feel that the uh, media is handling the coverage so far? And what are you sort of worried about going forward?
1: Well, you know, in the novel Savage News, um, I write about a young woman who's always wanted to be White House correspondent. Her name is Natalie Savage. And um, she works in a cable news channel and she's vying to get the job of White House correspondent for her cable channel. And one of the things she comes up against is um, sort of management that is both obsessed with her hair, just like I had, (laughs) and with the ratings. And, you know, she has to go on these stories that will get them ratings. And she has to decide how much she wants to play along with that to get ahead or how much she feels like that's just at odds with her whole purpose in being in the news. Um, And so she weighs that. And that's one of the dramas that plays out in the novel. Um, To some extent, I think we see that in the news these days. Um, For me, I think that pontificating about the 2020 outcomes, who's going to be the front runner, who's going to be the nominee, who will win for president... It's kind of a waste of airspace. It doesn't we don't know. so and and that's where I take issue. When we have more information, when we know their policy positions, when the debates start, we can talk in a substantive way. Right now, it's like a personality contest.
0: We were talking about prior sort of how women who report um, the news are perceived. What about how women are covered in the media today, like the female all the female candidates that are coming up? how do you do you see that there's a difference? I think that the
1: media has gotten better. Um, you know, they know not to call people shrill. They know p- not to call people um, critique women's clothes. But there's still an undercurrent. Why is Amy Klobuchar un- criticized for how she treats her staff when there's plenty of guys who are tough on their staff too, for example? Um, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is the different ways. Um, there's a, a celebrity who's says she was raped. And one of the things that they want to do is dig into her past in TV and look at how, um, if she was a floozy kind of thing. And I still think you see some of that in the media. People are a little more mindful of it. There's not a big story along those lines right now, but even post me too, that's a reflex. That's hard for this media environment to deny or resist.
0: You wrote a very interesting um, op ed about the Kavanaugh case. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what your feelings were about the
1: reporting there? I can tell you that I really focused in my reporting on um, sort of trying to remember that there are people in the audience who are for whom this is very raw. Uh, and I found because I'm on Instagram, people are constantly DMing me, messaging me. And for a lot of women who couldn't watch the hearings because they were sexual assault survivors themselves, and it was incredibly. it brought back all these memories and this anxiety. And they were asking me what to do, and they thought that when they followed me, I was covering it in a way that made them feel safe. Uh, And so I just incorporated into my coverage that, you know, if this is upsetting to you or brings back memories, there's this new national organization you can call and just have a conversation. It's a hotline. It can, however, long ago it happened. Don't worry. And just the idea of incorporating that human element, I think, changed the experience for a lot of people. That's the kind of thing that news organizations generally would shy away from, but I didn't feel the need to. I think it's an important way to help people feel safe while they continue to engage.
0: So I wanted to talk to you about the novel. You 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 talked a little bit about what it was about um, just now, but. Why did you decide to do to make this story savage news into a novel?
1: I always wanted to write a novel for one, so write what you know. And two, I really wanted to give people a glimpse of what it's like on the bright side of the camera lights and what it's like, I call it re- to be reporting while female. And I thought I could get more people invested and engaged. If I wrote a story as opposed to a nonfiction book, if I wrote a nonfiction book, it'd be all about naming names and who's who, and it'd be inside the bubble and be, there's no way you can do that in a fun way. Right. And I don't, I'm not interested in that. I really wanted to get a larger audience to see just some of what goes on. And I thought to do a fun story would be a great way to do it. Also, I wanted to sort of make it larger than life. And when I started writing was pre-Trump. So the way to go larger than life then was fiction. If I did it now, it might be not fiction. <laughs> Things have changed. Yes,
0: <laughs> now everything seems like it's fiction, right?
1: Yeah, but I'll give you an example. Like There's a scene in the book where the whole Washington bureau freaks out because the breaking news banner has crashed and they're live on air without the words breaking news on the screen. And how can we be break news if the words breaking news aren't out there? Um, And so everyone freaks out and runs to the control room to summon up the magic words. Then they decide after that, that henceforth everything from Washington will be breaking news. So there will be no banner. It'll just be plastered on forever. Now, that's not, that's not true. I exaggerated the truth, right? Like I made it larger than life to make a point.
0: But it is true now, (laughs) almost, right? I
1: know. I was, I've had this debate with people who are like, no, no, it's true.
0: Yeah. I I mean if you would ask me, it's like I, I see that banner, it's
1: always there, isn't it? I mean there's something they call it developing story that's just in happening now. We've just learned. Well you had that
0: feeling. Well finally, Jessica, are you positive going forward about the state of journalism
1: in the media? I make a distinction between journalism and programming. So journalism, to me, the practice of journalism is alive and well. My former colleagues, reporters in Washington, are kicking butt. They are doing great work um, on the beats, getting, investigating, getting news to the American people, and unearthing important information. On the At the same time, many of them work inside organizations that too often prioritize things like ratings and hair and the way those two things interact. And so... I do think that we're going to continue to probably see a lot of the everything's a mountain, nothing's a molehill framing, and at the same time, phenomenal journalism inside it. I just hope that we can shift the balance to more focus on the journalism and less – the you know larger than life mo- everything's a mountain framing
0: and my listeners can um, w- watch you on Instagram going forward and you'll be reporting on everything from you know from now until the election I-, I suppose yes
1: at Jessica Yellen and I am going to cover covering what's going on in Capitol Hill with the administration around the Mueller report uh, do cheat sheets on all the candidates I'm. Um, I help, you know, break down some of the important policy issues that are up for discussion. And I try to bring in a little bit of international news when I can. Um, And I hope to grow it to bring in, you know, do even more. So, yes, please tune in.
0: And your hair will be straight on both sides.
1: I mean, this is (laughs) the irony. If I was so trained to do the hair TV look, I still do it. Oh, yeah? I can't break myself of it. Hopefully for a next generation that will let their hair go curly.
0: Okay, well, good. Jessica, thank you so much for taking your time with me and for taking this approach to um, to news. We really need people like
1: you out there. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you so much to Jessica Yellen. Her book is Savage News, and her Instagram is at Jessica Yellen. And thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter, at PodpopCulture, or at Christina Biro. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on iTunes. It's really helpful. This show was edited by Julia Scott, and I'm Christina Yerling Biro. See you next time.